This season of Well and Good is sponsored by Subaru, the perfect car for living a full life in New Zealand. New Zealanders are doers, the type of people who are always pushing to sneak a little more out of life. We're up early to sneak in a morning swim or out surfing to catch that one last wave. If you want to do a little extra, do it in an all-wheel drive Subaru. Kia ora, folks. Welcome to the pod Hello, hello. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Tony Fernando, and he is just the sweetest man, isn't he? I mean, he's just the nicest guy. He is the actual nicest guy. So we talked a lot about, uh, what do we talk about? Sleep, mindfulness. Yeah, a lot about mindfulness. Um, Tony is a psychiatrist, a sleep specialist, and a senior lecturer in psychological medicine at the University of Auckland. He's also a compassion specialist, which is really interesting. We talk a bit about that in his work in Mount Eden Prison. Yeah, that that was really cool to hear about, actually. And we also talked about the misconceptions of mindfulness because, as we know, it's a bit of a bit of a crazy topic. Everyone's talking about it at the moment, and a lot of people don't really know what it is. Yeah, don't really understand exactly what it's all about. Um, so Tony offers some great insight into that. He also covers a bit about sleep and sleep problems, some like tools and tips and tricks and things um, to help us with our sleep. So we know you're going to love this one. Here we go. Welcome, Tony. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. And I thought we'd start off by you telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into specialising in sleep and some of the other work that you do currently. Yeah, so background-wise, I'm Filipino, so I Mm -hmm. grew up in Manila, Um, did my med school there and then left to do my psychiatry training in New York and Philadelphia and that's where I accidentally stumbled into sleep medicine so I was a geek I'm a geek so <laughs> <laughs> geeks rule the world they really so do I was a training psychiatrist and I told my supervisor uh, hey Marty I want to do some research I don't have any experience in research and can I just work with you not knowing that I was talking to one of the biggest guys in sleep medicine research in the world. <laughs> so he's like, I'll give you some research. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's very, very casual. He said, oh, yeah, all right, we have this project. And, and I didn't know that the lab that I was working with is one of the top sleep labs in the world, like mm-hmm. doing work with astronauts, wow. um, doing work with lots of animal models of sleep, doing cutting-edge work in sleep apnea research. So... I never had plans to become a sleep specialist. It's kind of perfect, actually. I guess you're starting, like, at the top, right? Yeah, yeah. When I I imagine a sleep lab, I'm imagining people in beds with electrodes all over their heads and monitoring and that sort of thing. Is that what it's like? So that's what we call an overnight sleep lab that's used for clinical purposes, usually, uh, when you're trying to diagnose conditions. But the lab I'm talking about in Philadelphia also involves lots of high-tech neuroimaging, looking at the brain, looking at genes, looking at all fancy cellular work on sleep. So it's this massive center, looking at body clocks, looking at diseases, looking at uh, sleepiness, looking at truck drivers who fall asleep. So it was actually, uh, how many years ago? That was in late 90s. Were they already developing gadgets to monitor the pupils for sleepy drivers, which are now being implemented? So, oh, yeah. so like to things, track, things that to wait. track sleepiness. Ah, yeah. So you put a gadget in front of the dashboard, and that's actually monitoring your eyes. So if a driver nods off a little bit, it picks it up. So they were already doing work on that, like uh, yeah, in the well, late 90s. Because like, that's even starting to become a little more mainstream now. Cause, yes. Because my car, the Forester, has that. So like if I look down and check the radio or if I'm kind of looking around, it beeps and says, keep your eyes on the road or like take a rest or if it notices that you're kind of... Blinking too much, I think, was another thing. It, yeah, blinking yeah. too much, yeah. which is too, pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, so I was mm. working with these people in the mid-90s to late 90s. Mm. So did sleep medicine and then got a invitation from Auckland Hospital in 1998 to do locum work or short-term work in New Zealand and never went back to the States. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the states, but uh, despite Kiwi's complaints about the healthcare system here, I think it generally works. Yeah. And as a psychiatrist, where a lot of our patients are quite poor or financially, you know, not capable of paying insurance or fees, in the U.S., you know the chances of you getting good care is not that great. Yeah. But in a health system like us, you can be poor, homeless, or on some kind of pension, and you can still get good care. So that attracted me to stay in New Zealand. And then eventually I moved to the med school. So they asked me to apply for an academic position at the med school. So I've been in the med school since 2000. Awesome. And um, you do work in... What was it called? It starts with C. Compassion. Compassion. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. compassion. Oh, I can't believe so, I forgot that word. <laughs> yeah, it's like compassion medicine. Yeah. Yes. So, right? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? So around mid-2000s, I became interested in this whole Buddhist psychology thingy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the technical that term. Yeah, that's the technical yeah. term. Um, the reason is I had patients who have severe mental health problems. Some of them are self-harmers. When they're in distress, they would self-harm. And a lot of our treatments don't work. And then a few of them started to learn how to do mindfulness practice from a particular treatment program. And a lot of them say, oh, I have better control of my emotions and my cutting. I was thinking, hmm, what's this? That can work for me too. (laughs) So I learned how to do mindfulness meditation. And part of the course, it was in Gray Lynn, part of the course was also to learn to do compassion training. And I was thinking, oh, what's, what's that fluffy compassion training thing? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a cynic you know, when it comes to these things. Yeah. And I realized after doing a couple of months of compassion training, so it's a meditation practice, I actually noticed that, oh, Tony, you're slightly kinder to people. <laughs> <laughs> after that program, I cannot deliberately harm an animal, as in consciously kill I just can't. Mm. And the training didn't have anything to do with animals. It's more of training the mind to see that everyone's like you. So that's the training. The training is all of us are the same. All of us just want to be happy. All of us suffer. All of us have shit. All of us have baggage. All of us have dramas. So that's the mind training. It sounds basic, but for me, one of the results was it's harder for me to deliberately cause harm. I still cause harm, or I, so yeah. I'm, I'm not Everyone enlightened does. or a saint, but mm. I, I just cannot deliberately do that. So, and it affected my clinical practice. So, working with patients, working with colleagues who can be difficult, or even treating myself, I noticed that it's lighter. Mm. And then I came up with an idea of. Hmm, I should do a PhD on this because compassion in medicine is so important, but it's not studied. So we were told as clinicians that, hey, you should be compassionate. Patients expect this. Yeah, yeah, we'll try to be. But we're actually not taught how. No. And we don't, we don't even know the definition are, of compassion. Yeah, like some people are probably naturally more yeah. compassionate than, than others. And yeah. so for those others, it's hard to know how to start being something yeah. or that how you're can, not. Or how can you be kind to a patient who's really obnoxious? Yeah, that's so true. Or how can you help other people when you actually haven't slept? So my PhD, together with my professor, Professor Considine, we've looked at compassion from a scientific perspective, looking at it as not just coming from the doctor, but compassion is highly influenced by a lot of other things. So, of course, your mental state will influence it, but the type of person you're dealing with also influences your compassion towards him or her. The system where you're working at, if it's a bullying system or is it a kind system, is it a system that really wants the best for patients, or is it a system that just looks at bed numbers, let's move people around, how much are we earning? That system will not promote compassion. Or if the doctors and nurses are not sleeping and they're treated like shit, how can you expect them to be compassionate? So we're looking at compassion not just from this emotional, nice-feeling phenomenon to what affects it. We're we're social creatures, and social creatures... uh, are highly affected by what's going on around them. So so that's uh, the work we're doing with Compassion, and it's still carrying on. And we just had this massive conference, Compassion in Healthcare conference, just recently. And it was my first time to organize a big conference like this. And I was worried that what if only 10 people attend? <laughs> <laughs> the overheads are pretty steep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to need more pretty than 10. Pretty steep. And then me and my boss said, no, let's just wing it um, with no funds. 
and two months, six weeks to eight weeks before the conference, it sold out. Oh, that's so Brilliant. cool. So for a couple of months, I had to compassionately tell people, sorry, we're full, sorry, we're full, sorry, we're full. Well, it means you can do another one. No, we're already planning next year's Great. And so, so this conference, this is for like medical practitioners, is um, it? It's actually open to everyone, but focused on people who are in the health as well as service industry. But a lot of them are doctors and nurses, psychologists and therapists, people who work in hospitals. That's our priority. And so the whole idea with that is to try and spread all of the knowledge that you yeah. have discovered about how important it all is and then what sort of telling them and giving them some thoughts on how they can Yes. So, so for us, talking about compassion is, of course, important. But for me, the most important is what's your take home? What are specific things you can actually do to enhance compassion? It's actually not rocket science. So one of the things we have are just basic reminders Nothing different from, uh, you guys have a wedding band? Or you're not mm-hmm. wearing oh, I've broken my finger, actually, so I can't. <laughs> it doesn't fit on my finger right now. <laughs> so nothing, oh, different, yes. nothing different from a wedding band. You know, you marry someone, you make that promise, but a lot of times you want to kill each other. A lot of times you're thinking, oh, why am I with this person? But the reminder is, hey, hang on, you made a commitment. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, you, you can't fulfill it, but try your best. So similarly with compassion in health, we forget. Many doctors, nurses forget that we're actually here to care. Mm. When we're under a lot of stress, the natural tendency of the mind is to protect itself, to protect the organism. So if I'm under a lot of stress, if my patient's really difficult or a family's complaining, which can happen, the natural tendency is to shut down and defend. If I'm not aware that, Tony, you're just too close now, if there are no reminders, I'll just stay in that. So reminding is just one simple act. We have silicon wristbands, we have lanyards. But, of course, there are deeper ways to enhance compassion, which is reconditioning your mind, looking at things a little differently. Mindfulness has been shown to actually enhance compassion. And then looking at systems. So all sorts of ways to tackle the issue of compassion. Yeah, the mindfulness. It's interesting that you found mindfulness from the medical perspective. Like you found it from a treatment point of view, yeah. right? Whereas I think a lot of people find it, at the moment at least, it's quite a trending subject mm-hmm. in the health and wellness area. That's at least how I have found it. I found it through various people and things a I've read. A little more and, alternative. Yeah, yeah, and just as a way to improve my health and my mental well-being. And I found it hugely beneficial for me. It's kind of hard to actually describe what mindfulness is. Is there a definition or is there a way that you try and explain to people what mindfulness yeah. actually is? There are lots of definitions around, and even the term mindfulness is controversial Mm. because what mindfulness is trying to capture or mean is actually the original term is Pali, which is the original language of the Buddha, which I think mindfulness means, I think, samadhi or samatha or something. But when you translate it in English, it really doesn't capture it. So even from that (laughs) translation to English, there's already debate. So we're already wrong. Uh, Well, I think we have to be kind to ourselves. We're we're, we're trying our best. And different definitions of mindfulness, a common definition is mindfulness is continuous awareness and attending to the present and being very accepting of what's happening without judgment. So that's a common definition of mindfulness. A definition of mindfulness which really appeals to me and which makes sense to me is mindfulness is a type of relating to the present. It's actually a relational practice. Some people think it's mainly concentration, hmm, breath. No, I, I think it's more than that. It's actually how you relate to the stimuli at the present. And the stimuli can be thoughts. The stimulus can be the annoying driver who cuts cuts in front of you. The stimulus can be a nasty text from a family member. The stimulus can be crispy pork. I'm Filipino. Crispy pork's like, oh, my God. (laughs) So, So it's how you relate to stimuli and being accepting, being present, not pushing things away or not craving for them. So it's this very balanced approach to being. So that's my preferred definition of mindfulness. It's developing this relationship to the present in a very calm, accepting, kind way. It doesn't mean that you've resigned not to do anything since it's all relational. No, it's not that. You know, if, if I see something wrong, let's say I see a colleague bullying a nurse. If I'm mindful, so the stimulus is the bullying, how do I relate to that bullying? I look at it, I'm calm about it, 
but it doesn't mean it stops there. I address it. So mindfulness is not this passive, uh, just accept everything that's going on. That's stupidity. We have to act with wisdom. It also means that when I'm addressing the issue with the bully and my colleague, to do it also kindly. So a lot of mindfulness, I think, is how we relate to the present moment and also treating the present moment with a lot of kindness versus, oh, I hate this, oh, F this, F that. That actually causes a lot of suffering, but it actually doesn't change your situation. The objective situation doesn't change, but you change your mental state because you're pushing things away. "Ah, I don't like this. Or, oh, it should be this way, it should be this way. Then you create that craving and that agitation. Uh, sorry, I talk too much. I'm not sure if no, you're making sense. No, that's the whole point of this podcast is to hear you talk. <laughs> <laughs> too and much. Pass, and pass to sit here mindfully as we... Yeah, people want to hear from you, not us. So. Yeah, no, because that's interesting because I think a lot of people think about mindfulness as the practice of meditation. Like, mm-hmm. that is mindfulness. Oh, no. I, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. What you just said there made a lot of sense. You know, yeah. like, I think it's all about... You'll say this way better than I can, but using meditation as a way to enable us to be more mindful in yeah. those situations that yes. you that you suggested. And yeah. I know for me, the biggest difference has been that in situations where there's that stimulus of like maybe something has made me angry or frustrated. I was mm-hmm. putting together some kit set um, outdoor furniture the other day, and it, that's fun, and it made me frustrated. <laughs> but but normally I would get frustrated. Mm-hmm. But now since I've been meditating for almost a year now, I think that the way that it's impacted me is it's enabled me to before I instantly react to that mm-hmm. and get frustrated, I kind of think about it first and I acknowledge the way I'm thinking about it and what that means. Mm-hmm. I actually started thinking about it as more of a challenge and more of like a positive thing. Anyway, I'm kind of rambled, but... No, but what you said made sense. So mindfulness, a lot of it is noticing, but noticing calmly, noticing kindly. Like, look at this. I'm really getting annoyed with this stupid kid set. <laughs> Yeah, and then you, and if I'm mindful, I notice. Tony, notice. You're getting annoyed. It's normal. Mm-hmm. Kid sets are designed to make you annoyed. They really are. <laughs> They're a challenge. Yeah. So it's noticing the upset, but not adding the extra baggage of, you're stupid at this. You're hopeless. So that's what actually causes extra suffering for all of us. We, we cannot stop frustrations. We cannot stop death. We cannot stop horrible things in life. But what we can deal with is how we respond to them. And mindfulness can help us respond calmly and kindly. Another misconception about mindfulness is that mindfulness is quieting the mind. No, our mind's naturally busy and crazy, so we accept it as it is. But what happens with mindfulness practice is there seems to be more of these gaps, these periods of calm, But I tell people, don't think that thinking is an enemy. No, thinking is incredibly important. (laughs) But if you can think calmly and be accepting of what you're thinking, then that's mindfulness. So it's not just being quiet. It's not just focusing on the breath. Because even some people say, oh, mindfulness is focusing on the breath. Well, it depends. Because if you focus on the breath with so much intensity and perfectionism, like, I have to focus on the breath. (sighs) And then you get stressed out and if then you, you can't get stressed. focus on it. think you might be doing it wrong. Yeah, which is actually one of the most common reasons, apparently, for people not carrying on with mindfulness practice. There's a degree of difficulty. You have to put in an effort. But the main reason why people give up is because they want their minds to be quiet. It's not going to happen in day one or day 333. You will have little glimpses of that. But if that's your goal... You're already not being mindful because mindfulness is actually not having a goal at that time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's being it makes sense. being accepting. So it's not being quiet. It's not just the breath. It's how you relate to the breath. Are you focusing on the breath, paying attention to it? And are you kind to yourself when you are unable to focus on the breath? When you get distracted, are you able to go back to the breath kindly or do you beat yourself up? You're such a failure. You can't even freaking focus on the breath. Forget this whole mindfulness mumbo-jumbo. It's not going to work for you. You're a loser. And people give up. In fact, these are the people who need to practice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, quite a good saying was, uh, if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate, then you really should be meditating or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we then, even start with two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, because the ones that are too busy, those are the ones that really need it. Yeah. 
And then uh, talking about mindfulness, you've been doing quite a bit of work with the inmates at Mount Eden Prison. I wouldn't say quite a bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> or just started? Or <laughs> yeah, um, we did it 2000, I forgot now, 17 for a while. And then we just restarted again. Actually, today was my first day back at Mount Eden oh, Prison. Oh, timing. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm not there for a long time. <laughs> um, but I was so looking forward to it. Doing the sessions in Mount Eden is actually a whole new world because if you haven't been inside, the whole process of going through security, this massive slamming doors. Is it just like the movies? It's worse. Really? Because you can get trapped in corridors and it's hard to describe. But once I'm with the inmates, I see them as just like high school kids. You can see them playing ping pong, running around. Some people having toast, and it's, it's just like a big schoolyard, <laughs> yeah. really. It's like a big schoolyard. And then someone will say, meditation session. <laughs> <laughs> and they all come running. Oh, no, no. It's yeah. a, <laughs> depends, they drop depends. everything, so, they drop their toes. So, so this is the first session I had with this unit. So I manage my expectations all the time. I try to because... For me, if your expectations are not met or expectation is too far from reality, then you suffer. Mm. So I always tell myself. Very low expectations. Yeah, so <laughs> I'll be happy if there's two. Yeah. That's me and the guard. <laughs> <laughs> and there were seven. And for me, that's fantastic. And that's seven out of a small unit of about 50. And they were really present. And they talked about how screwed up their mind is. And I say... All of us. And they talk about regret. They let their minds just go. They focus on their failures, the harm they've caused. So I normalize that. We're not different. That's what happens to people outside, too. <laughs> I only have 30 minutes because they're very tight schedule there. So we did a standing meditation first for about two, three minutes where we focus on the sensation because many of these people have very busy minds and they're not used to focusing on the breath because the breath is actually quite subtle. So similar to teaching mindfulness to young people, you focus on body sensations. So paying attention to the feeling of standing on their feet, the feeling of swaying, just paying attention to the body swaying, paying attention to uh, bending your knee, just full attention. But if you get distracted, that's all right. Go back to the sensation. So we did that for a few minutes. So we had about three rounds, and it was just so touching when they say, oh, and there's this big guy, very big guy, <laughs> super muscly guy, probably six foot two, and he said, oh, I'm at peace. Thank That's you, really Tommy. lovely. Thank you. I have to control myself because I don't want to cry in front of me, but I can if I, if, if I cry. But for these are people who really are hungry for training. In fact, last year, or not sure, last year or more than a year ago, I've had inmates tell me, one of them said, you know, Tony, when I got incarcerated, every time the doors slam, which can happen every few minutes, <laughs> right? It's not like once a day. He will have this mild panic attack. And then he said, after some basic teaching on meditation, on mindfulness of the breath, and I give them handouts because, you know, they, they don't have computers. He said he's been practicing mindfulness and instead of a girly poster on the wall. He has my mindfulness instruction. <laughs> I, was I thinking, love I'm not sure if I'll be happy or I think you'd better off with a nice looking person there than my mindfulness instruction. And then he said that since learning how to do mindfulness meditation, his panic attacks went away. And wow. I was thinking, God, these people really are hungry for techniques. We take these things for granted. Middle class mm -hmm. folks, yeah, like we're, with a good upbringing. Like we've taught, had good examples. We're taught how to, all right, you can't have ice cream right now. <laughs> Wait, you don't hit your sister. <laughs> yeah. We take things for granted. And for yeah. many of these folks I've met, their upbringing is just totally different. Yeah. And, that acting and on impulse like, and anger yeah. is the norm. And also for protection. Mm. You can't, you know, I, I think, I, mean, I guess I don't go into the details of their story. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a vicious cycle because I guess if that's all you've known and if yeah. that's all you've grown up around, how, how do you expect that's them to be any different? That's yeah. their so, so when they meet people like us who don't do that all the time, once in a while probably we do, but they're thinking, what's wrong with you? You, you, guys, are, you guys are weak mm. because we will not survive in their world. Mm. 
But yeah, yeah so for, for me, c- coming back to Mount Eden, <laughs> it's like the highlight, really. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure it probably has a hugely positive effect on the prison inmates as a whole, like from a guard's perspective as well. Not yet in Mount Eden, because what I've been doing is pretty small. Yeah. But there have been reports of whole prisons learning how to meditate, and the return rates to prison are lower, violence drops, all sorts of measures. In fact, one of my dreams is for prisons to have regular, in a way, podcasts. So instead of just listening to rock music, they will have, you know, a period where 30 minutes talk on emotions, 30 minutes sometimes talk about relationships, and they don't have a choice. I mean, they can block their ears or put headphones on, but I'm sure it will be revealing to them, like, oh, actually, I didn't know that's how you relate to other people. We didn't know that you can actually train the mind to be calmer. And it's pretty simple, Mm. you know. And you can do a study, like half of the prison having this regular podcast or teaching sessions on the speakers and half not having that and do measures. Yeah, I suppose it's actually probably a really good way to do a study because it can be so controlled, right? It's a very playing field. It's very regimented. You you can just have recordings and tell the guy, oh, this time you, re- you put this on and put this on. And, and in the evening, they can have guided meditations. It's non-religious. In the same way, they have, you know, they have fitness. They have, some people learn yoga. I, I don't see any reason why we cannot teach them how to manage the mind, which is, I think, one of the main reasons why people are in prison. Yeah. It's because of out-of-control minds. Do you think that it would be something we should be teaching our young kids? I think so. A lot of schools are doing that now. Some schools are quite involved in what you call positive education. They teach kids now how to conflict resolve. They teach kids how to manage their frustrations. And in these schools, they also teach basic mindfulness techniques. In fact, there's a school here in Auckland that's been teaching short form of mindfulness for decades now. A few schools now have programs, and they've done measurements, actually, here in New Zealand. One of my co-colleagues, Grant Ricks, has done studies in schools on teaching very basic mindfulness approaches to kids and with very good results. The way I view mindfulness, it's not different from learning another skill like maths, geometry, rugby. But for me, I think it's something that should be taught to everyone. I think so too. With an option to opt out. You know, some people, because of their belief system, so that's not very common, but I've met people who will say, oh, Tony, according to my teacher in this group, it's not consistent with my religion. So it's, okay, yeah, that's all right. Fine. Mm. But most people are very, very open, especially when you look at the science. There's no question mindfulness can help in a lot of things. I do not view mindfulness as a treatment to a lot of conditions because some people say, oh, mindfulness will treat this, will treat that. Mindfulness was never designed by the Buddha to treat disorders. But a healthier mind can help you recover more, if so that makes sense. It's almost like a tool that's part it's an of a greater... tool, yeah. yeah. What if someone comes up to you and says, I want to practice mindfulness? Like, how do you... Yeah, so there are different ways to learn it. The easiest way now to learn very basic mindfulness is through apps. So there are a few apps out there that are pretty good. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention the apps. Yeah, you go can. For it. There's Headspace is one of the most commonly used one globally. Headspace was devised by this English chap who was previously a Tibetan monk and then went to teaching and then developed this app. It's now the most used app for mindfulness. And then there's Waking Up by Sam Harris for those who want to learn about mindfulness but also want to learn about a lot of deep philosophical concepts from Buddhism. That sounds interesting. Um, It's very interesting. It's not for everyone Mm. because he also tackles the whole issue of the concept of the self. I'm not an expert on that topic, but it's that stuff blows my mind, like it's, with it's, ego and all that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, I still and haven't got my head around. So you a might want to look at Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give that a listen because he's dissected it really well, and it's actually because of our self-absorption that causes a lot of suffering. And then there's Ten Percent Happier by Dan Harris. He's a New York broadcaster from NBC, I think, who had panic attacks. You will see it on on YouTube. He had a panic attack during a broadcast, and I he think was just I've starting. Seen that. He was really? starting to make mistakes and. And then he learned mindfulness. He wrote a beautiful book, funny book, and also has this app. The nice thing with him is he's a cynic. So he's not someone who'll just do a lot of this Eastern type stuff. Yeah. He's always questioning. So when you read this book, it's so funny. 
because he's, he'll talk about how he's meditating and then the commenting mind starts coming in and, and he's able to describe this debate in his head. Yeah. It's just so funny. That's oh, great. That's so, what I kind of so it's called 10% Happier. So the same as the apps, the same as the yeah, book. The, the, app, the app's 10% Happier and his book is 10% Happier. Okay, cool. Oh, well, that's what I sort of love about mindfulness now is that it's not just hippies and like mm-hmm. yoga people. It's mm. scientists. It's everyone. It's professionals. It's mm-hmm. And there's so much science, as you say, to back it up. So it's kind of becoming mainstream everywhere, like in the academic world. And it's it's really exciting. Yeah, at the med school, medical students learn basic mindfulness. It's part of the curriculum. And then wow, we, is, it, is that yeah. a recent thing? Or is that no, no, it's been going on for a few years. Oh, We're, brilliant. But Auckland, I think, is Quite relatively advanced, mm. progressive when it comes to these things. I think we're one of the first probably in this part of the world. The first one that's really established is Monash in Melbourne. And the reason for this is the doctors being you know, overthinkers tend to have very high rates of depression, We tend to have high rates of burnout and suicide, unfortunately. So at least here in Auckland, as well as other med schools, we look into the well-being of our doctors, med students, also nurses, seriously, because... A lot of us are screwed up. Us are, and you're also de- dealing with some serious, <laughs> things, awful oh, yeah. things and yeah. a lot of emotions from other people, yeah. which can be very draining. So yeah. I think it's pretty easy to say like, oh, they sort of desensitize themselves to that. But that's not human yeah, nature. The, to yeah, it's not human nature. Exactly. We, we, even if you say you're desensitized, I'm sure you're still getting affected. But definitely patients and families and what's happening in in the hospital affects us. But what's also difficult would be colleagues who are bullying or colleagues who are just not very kind. And then you have the system, which doesn't engender kindness. And then you also have the worst enemy of the doctor is himself or herself. It's the perfectionist mind, the self-critic. Going back to mindfulness, I'm really passionate about teaching mindfulness to students med students and as well as everyone is when you're mindful that's when you notice all these quirks particularly the nasty self-critic coming up and only then can you work with it or you just think it's a part of you and you think it's just normal when in fact what some of our teachers say is we have a committee in our head and in this committee you have different committee members so there's the kind you there's the just you there's the sporty you there's the lustful you, there's the greedy you, there's the self-critic. They're all members of our committee, and it's all part of our mind. This, you know, to, to deal with different situations, we have these different committee members. The question is, who's chairing your committee? And for many doctors, and not just doctors, but uh, I think the same as architects, lawyers, a lot of the professionals, the self-critic chairs. Mm. And for me, that it's a na- nasty way to live. So... If you're a little more mindful, you notice this committee, you normalize it. You don't say, oh, stupid me, why is that self-critic, that chair? So that's not being mindful. So if I'm mindful, I notice, oh, the self-critic's chairing. And then with training, you can let the compassionate part of you chair. Mm. So I don't know what we were talking about now, that's, I, I digress. Yeah, that's such a cool way of thinking about it. <laughs> I really like that. And they're all normal. Yeah. In fact, you know, the one sensitive topic is the issue of racism and extremism. And some people say, oh, you know, that's not us. I beg to disagree. All of us have a degree of it. All of us have a degree of judgment. All of us have a degree of being a little worried about people who look different. It's normal for evolution. Because before, a few hundred years ago, if you don't have that chair in the, in, if you don't have that committee member, your tribe will be killed. Yeah. Nowadays, we've advanced and we cooperate, and nowadays we can be colorblind and still live harmoniously. A few hundred years ago, in many places, that's not going to happen. So, But we still have this tendency to judge. So my, my response is, no, we have that tendency. But as long we need to recognize that we have it, but not feed it. Yeah. But it will always be there. Yeah, it's part of human nature. Mm. Yeah, totally. The self-critic voice, like, mm-hmm. that's useful from an evolutionary point of view to try yep. and improve and, yeah. you know, when it boils down to it, yeah, to procreate and survive, right? Yeah. You need to, to make an evaluation of what you've just done. Is that helpful or not? But 
the argument is you actually don't need the self-critic to chair all the time mm. because you can be your kind self and your industrious self chairing and still kind to yourself. So you can still achieve. So these guys can still be committee members, but just not yeah. the head of the table. Yeah. And if they become head, you accept, oh, it's chairing right now. That's, that's the mindful approach. Oh, look who's chairing. You have a choice. Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Subaru. Every new Subaru in New Zealand has all-wheel drive as standard. So this means that no matter what kind of road or surface you find yourself on, with Subaru's all-wheel drive, you can drive in confidence. But what does all-wheel drive mean? Great question, Matt. Thanks for asking. All-wheel drive distributes power to all four wheels, which gives you twice the grip of those vehicles that aren't all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. All-wheel drive is just one of many safety features that Sabara's five-star safety range has, and it gives us comfort that Baby Green will be travelling both safely and in style in our Sabaros. Another awesome thing people don't realise about Sabaros is that you don't have to pay extra for all-wheel drive. It's included in the price. So check out the Sabaru all-wheel drive range at sabaru.co.nz. So with mindfulness practice, is it something that you need to do guided meditation? Can you do it, like, without guidance? Yeah. My first experience learning mindfulness, I won't mention the particular group, where they did not give me instructions. They said, so just go and think. Yeah, what they said, no, just, they, just they, close they your just, eyes. They just said this, all right? They said, all right, Tony, why don't you sit on the cushion? So I sat on the cushion facing a white wall, not dissimilar from this, and then we start. Start what? Start what? <laughs> Oh, oh so just, just sitting there, eyes open, just looking at the yeah. white wall? looking at the wall. Okay. Interesting approach. <laughs> that's actually, that's how it's done in, in some traditional places. And then sooner or later, because as Westerners, we, we tend to, all right, I want the result now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I want to busy my mind yeah, because yeah, I'm yeah. so used to looking at my phone yeah, and so yeah. used to having stimulation. So, right? But remember, mindfulness has been around for 2,500 years. Mm. For most of that time, people were not that entitled for results quickly. So people have to do things gradually, 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 and then they learn. I did that for a few weeks, but it just drove me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it drove me nuts. Yeah, like, fair oh enough. Oh, my God, I need instructions. Yeah, I, I can't stare at this wall for I much can't stand longer. Like, <laughs> because I start to see patterns. Like, Am I hallucinating? Oh, I'm seeing a face. Is that meditation? <laughs> How long were you sitting there? It turns out, because I didn't ask, because there's the group effect. Everyone's yeah. doing it. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's probably thinking the same thing. No, no. <laughs> most of them are probably trained, and they, they've done it for years. Yeah. And I was this newbie. I think it was about 45 minutes. Oh, okay. my goodness. That's hell. Mm. But with persistence, <laughs> eventually, you notice what the mind does. It's a very hands-off approach, but that's a traditional mm. way of learning it from one particular group. So to answer your question, can you learn it without guided meditation? Yeah. In fact, there are people I've met who never learned about mindfulness, but they've developed that ability to be mindful on their own. If you're a little self-reflective, you can come up with a similar conclusion because we have the same ingredients anyway. But me, I'm a geek. I like having teachers. I like having someone teach me a new thing. So I went to a center in Gray Lynn where they've been teaching it for 20 years. And I call it the mindfulness course for idiots. <laughs> uh, that's my, it, that's not how they call it, but for idiots, because I'm an idiot. Yeah. And they just taught it really, really well. Wh what's the name of that place? Auckland Buddhist Center. Okay. They had a six-week course, and they've been doing it, I think, for 20 years, even before mindfulness became in vogue. Mm. From there, you know, people can learn mindfulness also from, like what I mentioned earlier, from apps. But nothing beats having a really experienced teacher, not someone who just did a course somewhere and now is teaching it, but someone who's been practicing it probably for five, ten years. And some of the teachers I've uh, had, they've been practicing it for, what, 30, 40, 50 years and their understanding of the mind is just mind-blowing. Because mm. kind of, I kind of think that everyone, like us as humans, we're all compassionate and empathetic and kind, but we just don't really know how to unlock those parts of the brain and make them work the majority of the time. Yep, I agree. Yeah. All of us have these tendencies, and we're, we're wired to connect. We're social creatures. We're social species. We've thrived because we cooperate and also kill each other on occasion for protective reasons, not because we're evil. So we have all of this present in our minds, but it's a question of who do we train 
who do we encourage? And during times like this, when things are relatively peaceful, we should train that compassionate, that present moment focused mind. Yeah, because I think it's an interesting way to help people connect to those around you that aren't instantly part of your circle because mm-hmm. most people have compassion for their family members or their friends, you know, but it's like, what about other people's family yeah. and other people's friends and how we're all connected, but for some reason people tend to forget that and they view the people around them with a different set of compassionate rules, I guess, than the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Which yeah, that's is actually not surprising. Again, from a psychological perspective, compassion and kindness is highly conditional. What that means is our kindness and compassion to others is dependent on a lot of factors for the untrained mind. And that's why I emphasize training. So for the untrained mind, people tend to be kinder and more compassionate towards their family versus the stranger. We tend to be kinder and more compassionate to people who are in our circle, people who look like us, people who share our beliefs. And again, that's probably evolutionarily helpful. You know, if with limited resources, if you have limited bananas, I'd rather that I share this banana only to my kin. And you protect your family. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you believe in evolution, we are wired or we have evolved to make sure our family and our genes survive and that we pass it on. So with limited resources, your priority is not the whole of humanity. Mm. Your priority is my family. And you'll go to war because of that. So compassion and kindness is naturally limited. Mm. That's why it's normal to have no feeling or to have negative feeling towards people who are not like us. But with training, one of the techniques is to break that barrier of them versus us. And one of the ways to break that is to train the mind to see everyone as exactly like you. Because we're not conditioned to think like that. No. I'm conditioned to see that, oh, that person's different from a different culture. They have a different set of values. They're different. That's, we naturally focus on what's different. So if I train my mind to see that, oh, actually that person who looks different, deep inside, is exactly like me. And how can I convince myself of that? So it's, I don't want to delude myself by saying, oh, we're all the same. That doesn't mean anything, really. We're all the same in what way? Number one, all of us just want to be happy. That's for sure. Yeah, when it boils down to it, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one. Second, all of us want to avoid pain and suffering. Number three, all of us just want to be loved. So there's this mental training that people can do to condition their mind. Now, not that different from training in mindfulness, where you notice the present, you accept... So this is a slightly different way of training the mind, but it's a meditation called Metta Bhavana. So it's a compassion training. It's been around for 2,500 years. You train the mind to see everyone is exactly like you. You train the mind to wish that you be happy, that you be safe, that you be free from suffering, that you be at peace. But again, we're not wired to think like that. No. <laughs> no. So it sounds really crazy when you talk about it because people say, how's that possible? Yeah, it's possible with training. It's been around for 2,500 years and it's still it's a very uh, well-used meditation practice. So I just Googled Metabhavna because I wanted to know how to spell it. So <laughs> M-E-T-T-A-B-H-A-V-A-N-A. Cool. So that yeah, that's definitely something I want to... Um, Me too. Have, give a go at it, actually. Oh, you might want to, uh, if you're interested in that topic, one of the best teachers is a woman called Sharon Salzberg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. And she, she's a New Yorker. She moved to India, I think, and then learned from masters there. And then in the 70s, you don't just do it like that. And then she's now one of the gurus of Metabhavana. So she has all of this very relatable training practices. And she's on our website. We have a website called com.auckland.ac.nz for the university. And she has podcasts there just teaching about metabhavana. The way I view training the mind is mindfulness keeps the head cool, but metabhavana keeps your heart warm. So for me, that two-pronged approach, because some people just focus too much on mindfulness And even though mindfulness can enhance compassion, that's been shown by one of our studies and shown by other studies, 
I think training the heart to be warm and kind can also be effective. Mm. Yeah. Just on mindfulness, how often do you recommend people should practice some that's form a, of mindfulness? That's and a it, hard question. Or you know? how long do you reckon yeah, it also, would take before people notice the difference? <laughs> so depending on who will answer that question, <laughs> um, you know, if, if you ask some of our Buddhist masters, they'll say you have to do it every day. But there have been mindfulness trials where they looked at dosing and the frequency of practice and what's an effective practice. I think the consensus is many times a day as possible. Like, you know, if, if you can do it every day, if not every other day, but, but it just keeps it fresh. And the duration, it's also debated. So some people say uh, even 10, 20 minutes is fine. Some people say even if you just do it a few seconds a day, in a way, it can just be a reminder, but the dose definitely has an effect. And I've noticed, like in my case, I've been a, an occasional meditator from mid-2000s until probably about three years ago. And I've noticed I'm calmer. I'm, my negative emotions, I still have them, have a shorter half-life. So I became a Buddhist monk briefly. And when I was in the monastery where I was doing it at least six, eight hours a day, I realized I can actually do it. And then since then, if I don't do it every day, there's something missing. And I have a crazy mind. I'm such a screwed up mind. I'm a judger. I don't have a big self-critic, but I'm very judgy. I'm very quick to, oh, what's wrong with this? Always. People th think I'm all a happy person, but... Without meditation, I, I can be very irritable and very high standards and expect people to have the same. But with meditation, my mind's clearer. I still have crap in my life, but I can see it and I still get anxious once in a while. But if I don't meditate, my mind's busier and more easily agitated. Mm. So it's, it's nice if it, it reaches a point where with the practitioner that it's nothing different for people who like sports. Like after, if you're not working out, there's something missing. If you're not having healthy food, there's something missing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I look forward to reaching that state because I have that with exercising. Like I yeah. really look forward to exercising. But with meditation, it's still a it's little still bit a, of a chore for it's me. It's a chore. Yeah. But I do find that at the end of so, a lot of my meditations, whether it's sort of like 15, 20 minutes, I don't want to stop. I don't want to yeah. come out because I am enjoying being in that state so much. Yeah, my suggestion is if your circumstances will allow is to actually stay a little longer, mm. stay a little longer. It's nicer if you set the time shorter and then want more versus set the time long and then halfway through you're like, oh, God, I'm oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if that happens, notice. It's normal. <laughs> Go back to the breath. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's have a little chat about sleep. So you're a... Sleep specialist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. You, you, wait, do you sleep yourself? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, mostly. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not a perfect sleeper anymore. I used to be a really good sleeper. Yeah. But uh, one thing that can happen with age, I'm actually aging, all of us are aging, is that your sleep also deteriorates a bit. And I've experienced that the past, uh, I would say, year, couple of years, that I notice it's a little lighter. So, um, and why is it? Is it because you don't need as much sleep as um, you get older? Or is there any? Yeah, that's actually controversial. Apparently, we still do need sleep the same amount, but our biology has changed. Our wiring has changed mm. in terms of the sleep circuits, you know, if you can call it like that. Nothing different from if you're a really fast sprinter in your prime. When you're my age, you're a little slower. So, it's not unusual for older people to have more superficial sleep and a little more fragmented. Right. We were talking just before we started recording about how the whole stigma of sleep is changing quite a lot because it used to be that CEOs or like high-profile business people would, it was kind of like a competition as to who mm -hmm. could run on the least amount of sleep. And they'd yes. be like getting up at 4 a.m. I only have five hours sleep a night blah, blah. But that seems to be changing a lot now, whereas yeah. that's not something to brag about because it can seriously affect your health, right? Yes. It doesn't make sense to actually deprive some, deprive oneself of sleep just to achieve things. It, it does not make any scientific physiological sense. Mm. And adequate sleep is crucial for optimal functioning. 
if you want to be a really effective CEO, artist, scientist, whatever, athlete, human being, human being <laughs> if you want optimal performance, you need to optimize your sleep. So how can sleep deprivation affect people? It can affect people in a lot of ways. So if it's acute, meaning short term, let's say uh, you're a mother, child didn't sleep well last night, and you're, you also sleep deprived the following day, what, how do you feel? You feel horrible. You feel crap. Emotionally, you're not as resilient. Your aches and pains tend to be more prominent, actually. You feel slightly hungover. Yeah, yeah there's this yuck feeling, but that's short term. You can imagine for people who have long-term sleep deprivation, in addition to feeling yuck, um, emotional changes, they're now more prone to depression. They're more prone to anxiety and even suicide. That's at least in terms of the mind. But in terms of the body, the effects are also not so good. People are more prone to diabetes. People are more prone to actually gain weight. There's this misconception before, at least when I was younger, that oh, if you don't sleep, you'll become thin. I, I don't yeah. know if you've heard that. Where does that. that come from? I don't know, but uh, apparently now, based on science, if your sleep is poor, metabolically you're not optimal, you're more prone to diabetes, and you're more prone to obesity. So lots of consequences, not just in the short term, but potentially mental health, your metabolism, and also your ability to fight infections. In fact, I was told by one of our scientists at Auckland yesterday, so this is scientific gossip, is that one of our labs here at Auckland have made the link between problems in your body clock. So if your body clock is out of sync, your immune function drops. For the longest time, we've seen the relationship between poor quality sleep and infection. And for the first time, they've demonstrated a specific reason why it might be happening. Wow, that's really interesting. And what about for people that just can't seem to get enough sleep? Do you have any tips for people that can yeah, help so, them? So that sounds like a problem like an insomnia. So we have three types, three general types of sleep problems. So one is, the most common one would be the insomnias. So poor quality sleep, uh, feeling like it takes you so long to fall asleep or your sleep's fragmented. When you get up in the morning, you feel like, oh, gosh, you know, I, I don't think I've had a good sleep. So it's very unrefreshed state. That's what we call insomnias. The opposite of insomnias, these are the excessive sleepers. So these are people who would need and desire to sleep all the time because they're nodding off. They cannot stop. And then the third one would be the weird, wonderful parasomnias. So these are the sleepwalkers, sleep talkers, people who do all sorts of unusual things, nightmares, sleep paralysis, crazy psychotic aspects of sleep. It's called parasomnias. So what this whole new world for them, so I guess. It's, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yesterday I was at, uh, talking to some students at AUT where they invited me, and one of them openly talked about her constant sleep paralysis. So for, for a month, every night, she will have these episodes of sleep paralysis where she cannot move, and then horrible things happen. And I said, oh, actually, I had that too when I was in med school, <laughs> but, but not what that What do you frequent. mean? So is she awake but can't move? Um, no, what happens with sleep paralysis is that uh, you surface to sleep. From, from, from deep sleep, you gradually surface into, the, into consciousness. So you open your eyes. You can see things around, but you can't move. But since part of your brain is still asleep, you would have hallucinations. Oh, man. Oh so you're goodness. like living in your dreams, but you can't move. You can't move. And it would be nice if the dreams are nice. Most of the time, it's, it's a nightmare. But the worst sleep paralysis case I've had was an older man who's become phobic of going to sleep. Oh. Because for most of his adult life, he would go into sleep paralysis every night. And once he's resurfacing from one sleep paralysis, he dives into another one. It's just constant. Oh, that poor man. Constant. Constant sleep paralysis throughout the night. So that's extreme. Oh, no but, wonder he had a phobia. No, he's, he's, he's phobic. He, he wants to be, he, he'll do everything to be awake mm. because sleeping is too traumatic. Oh, God, what a nightmare. And that just must be so detrimental to his health. Yeah, not yeah. being able to sleep or, you know, yeah. trying to stop himself from sleeping. It's quite interesting that sort of in-between world that, that you sometimes find yourself in because I am sometimes a sleep talker. So I'll wake myself up by talking 
and then just for a while. Wake me up by talking as well. Yeah, yeah that's my next question. My next question is, what does art do? Or what does exactly. Do? Then just for a while, you're you're in that half world of still carrying on your dream while being awake. Mm-hmm. So I'll be still talking or I'd saying something really bizarre and I'm awake and I'm saying it to Art. And he's like, are you awake? I'm like, yeah, I'm awake. I'm awake. But saying these really weird things. Yeah, does it mean that you are fully awake? No. And then the next day I can remember it, but I'm like, that wasn't reality. Mm. It's really bizarre. Yeah for, yeah, for the listeners out there, they should look at Art's face. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, like yep, yep, that yep. happens yeah. all the time. Well, I'm a very light sleeper, so just the smallest amount of noise from Maddie, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm like wide awake. Yeah. So going back to the question, sorry, Maddie asked a question about what do you do, mm. even for light sleepers or people who take a while to fall asleep or who wake up in the middle of the night, it's actually very important to find out what's causing it because there's all sorts of reasons. Right. One of the most common reasons nowadays for the, for the seriously problematic insomniacs, about half of the time it's because of stress, anxiety, and depression. And then about 30% of the time it's just what we call primary insomnia or the mind, it's just plain insomnia. There's no medical or, me, no medical or physical problem causing it their brains are just insomniacs. And then 20% would be caused by substances, other medical problems, other sleep problems. But one common reason now, guess. Screens. Gadgets. Mm. Especially young people. Um, I'm not surprised about that at all. Because what happens with devices, um, blue light emitting gadgets, even LED lights. So in fact, when I, when I, when I talk to patients with insomnia, they say, oh, Tony, I'm all right. I don't use gadgets. I just read a book, uh, a normal book. Because you have to ask now, is it a real book? Is it a <laughs> from <laughs> or a Kindle device? Or... And then I ask them, what, what kind of light do you have? What kind of lamp? And they use these powerful LED lights. LED lights emit so much blue light. We used to have incandescent. Now I actually ask people, can you use an incandescent? Yeah. <laughs> and they go to a light shop and the young girl doesn't know what an incandescent lamp yeah. is because it doesn't emit blue light. So now blue light devices is one of the most common reasons for poor quality mm. sleep. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why I've been talking to Maddie about wanting to do this experiment, <laughs> which she's not very keen about. But <laughs> oh, I, do. I, I go, am keen. I want to go a whole week without using lights, so just candlelight at uh, night. Yeah, you can. Uh, and see what it does. A uh, simpler technique, because that can be quite, you know, That's traumatic. What I'm thinking. Y- you might end up tripping. Yeah. <laughs> um, <one laughs> or the te- house might burn one, down. Yeah. One technique is to use blue light blockers. You know those trade glasses that are amber colored? Yep. And just use that when it's evening. So that'll have the same effect. Those blue light blockers really work. They work. They can cut blue light by 50%. But of course, nothing beats nothing. If, if, if you have sleep issues, I'll say no gadgets for two hours before sleep. Okay. But if you really want to experiment, see what happens by wearing those uh, amber glasses in addition to not using gadgets for about a week, see what happens. Because you've got to kind of wind your brain down before yeah. bedtime, don't you? You yeah. can't just turn it off and then go to sleep. It's uh, depends. Gonna... Depends. Oh, like if some yeah, yeah some, some people, people can, can just boop. because I I and take, some people are thinkers. Mm. Yeah, I t- I take sometimes like ten minutes, sometimes an hour because mm-hmm. I, to fall asleep after I close my eyes because my brain keeps going. Whereas, literally, sometimes thirty seconds after you turn your light off, Matt, you're asleep and I feel you twitching. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm so envious. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. One thing I also forgot to mention, another reason why some people have poor quality sleep or it takes a while to, for them to fall asleep is that because they're going to bed too early. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So all of us have different sleep requirements. So some of us would need eight hours to function optimally, and that's what the brain gives you. Your brain gives you about eight hours of sleep. Some people will only can only allow seven some people are wired to just get five hours of sleep. So if you're a five-hour, six-hour person and you go to bed at nine or ten and expect to be up at six, you'll be twiddling your thumbs or mm. your mind will be busy for an hour or two hours. 
And that's so frustrating. It, uh, yeah, so the frustration can then add to your feeling of annoyance with sleep and then can keep you awake. Mm. So in that situation, if you're lying in bed frustrated and you just mm. want to go to sleep, would you say, like, read a book or mm. kind of do do something to, to, to take your mind yeah. out yeah. of that yeah. situation? So it depends. So there's a couple of websites that can help people work on their insomnia. One is called amindfulway.com.au. So they incorporate mindfulness as well as cognitive behavioral strategies for insomnia. These are paid sites, but I think they're worth it. So the other website is sleepio.com, S-L-E-E-P-I-O.com. That's a website I usually recommend. It's developed by really top quality sleep researchers, and it's hosted by Oxford University. But one of the common techniques for, let's say, insomnia Assuming it's not a medical problem, assuming it's not a psychological or psychiatric problem, one of the simplest techniques we recommend, we come up with a formula or a schedule where we delay the person's sleep systematically. An example would be a person who goes to bed at 10 p.m., gets up at 6 a.m., but in actual fact, so they're in bed for eight hours, they only sleep for six. So the prescription, uh, using a psychological technique, is to propose to that person, all right, for the next month or even next two weeks, let's try delaying your bedtime, let's say 11 till 6 the first week. And then if you're still having sleep issues, you push it to 12 till 6 and then observe for the next couple of weeks. In about 60-70% of cases, they will improve. Not everyone needs eight hours. Mm. Mm. You have to find out what works for you as a person. And then if you need 10, is that kind of a similar thing? So Yeah, like, so, so you have the reverse issue. Now. So if you need 10 hours mm. and you're only getting eight, then you'll be sleep deprived. Mm. Our duration of sleep is determined by our genes also by our current situation, also by our life stage. All sorts of variables affect our duration of sleep. So that's why I get a little mindfully annoyed <laughs> when people say, all of us should sleep for eight hours. Like, you just don't know normal biology. It's a bell curve. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, should we finish with our final question? Yeah, let's. Okay. I don't know how that was on that note. What note? Well, you said on that note, but I mean, was it? <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't on, on that note at all. Mm. Yeah, well, anyway, regardless. In, on, on another note, our final question that we ask all of our guests mm -hmm. is, it might seem a little random, if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? Um, there's this Filipino thing, the crispy pork thing I mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that I, would Yeah, surely it's got to be crispy pork. It's called lechon, L-E-C-H-O-N. It's a... Pig on a roast, uh, 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 what do you call that? Spit roast. It's spit roast. Can you get that somewhere yes. in Auckland? Yes, yes, yes. You Where's can. the best place? Um, you have to contact the suppliers so they don't have a restaurant. Oh, right. yeah. one of those. So I'll send you, I'll send you details. <laughs> Please yeah, do. Yeah, put them in the show notes. Um, <laughs> so that's one. Um, second is paleo. No, just <laughs> No, second one. Oh, oh, there, there's this, uh, it's a Filipino-Spanish dessert, which I actually make, called leche flan. You, you might want to Google the picture. Leche flan. L-E-C-H-E-F-L-A-N. Oh, I make that. Good. I, 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 I can, flan I can is make it that. Delicious. I, apparently, I make one of the best in all. Oh, oh yeah, I've had a flan. You, you yeah, make but it look, mine's better. Really? <laughs> looks better, <laughs> better than, than the, the stock images. images. Mine's better than the stock image. Oh, so a, a caramel flan. dessert with a caramel custard dessert. Yeah, it's a Filipino. Oh, thing. yum! And the third one, it's a debate really whether I should go with the. Um, yeah, I'll go probably with the. Uh, sorry, it's all Filipino. Um, it's a. Uh, Filipino stir-fry noodles, mm. which we call pancit, B-A-N-C-I-T. You are going to have some great foods for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's, that sounds great. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not big on veggies, so probably I'll die in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. But you'll die but happy. I'll, I'll die happy with the, with the stroke. <laughs> Hopefully it's quick. Yeah. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Thanks to the roast pork. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you so much, Tony, for your time. It's been really, really awesome. Yeah. Thank and you if very people, much. If, if anyone wants to maybe contact you or follow you in any way, is there any way that people can... Yeah, I avoid being followed, so I don't okay. have a smart... <laughs> <laughs> they can email me at my work email. Okay. Um, that's at the University of Auckland. A, A for Antonio, that's my name, Antonio. So when my father's angry, Antonio. So, uh, but that's yeah. why I don't like the word Antonio. <laughs> Tony's nicer. So Anto- a.fernando, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-O, at auckland.ac.nz. Great. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so you. much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.